Hello everybody and welcome to the History Voyager. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very, very much for listening to mine. This is Brandon of the podcast talk Ag to Me. We had a fascinating podcast. And it's fascinating because I think we talked about how there's two sides in this country. There's an urban side and a rural side. And the two sides at the moment that I'm speaking into this microphone don't, or at least stereotypically don't get along. And I think the reason why is we don't understand the motivations behind, I guess, behind our political aims. And I also think we we don't take time to hear other people's side of the story. And as I've done this podcast, I've become more um, aware of the two sides and how the two sides have a lot of common problems and common, essentially common um, aims. But I think we need to talk about them because I think if we don't, we're going to end up in a situation that right now I don't think we want to be in. Anyway, thank you very much. And as always, I'm having a good day and I hope you are too. All right, everybody. See you later. Bye-bye. This call is now being recorded. Hi, everybody. I'm Ben Kitchings of the History Voyager. I'm here with Brandon of the podcast Talk Ag to Me. And I thought we would talk about, essentially, the premise of your podcast. And it's fascinating to me. Like, I mean, I guessed it on your podcast. And, um, you know, I'm not that far removed from a... My grandfather was a farmer. He had a job, too. He was an electrician on the railroad. But, uh, you know, I'm not that far removed from farming in my family tree. So I thought I'd ask you about where does our food come from? <laughs> awesome. Well, I'd be happy to answer uh, any questions you can have. But to answer your first one, food comes from the earth. You know, it comes from farms, from agriculture. Mm-hmm. So your farm... Um, is it, what do you grow on your farm? So, you know, I, uh, right now I'm a student in college, so I actually don't have access to any, any land in my family. Uh, we mostly provide, uh, services to other farms. We don't, we don't really do any farming ourselves. Um, we used to raise dairy cattle back in the day, but that was a long time ago. Now we, uh, mostly focus on pest control. Uh, my sister raises horses and does a lot of horse training and equestrian shit. My brother, uh, transports commodities for farms, so, uh, feed for animals, bedding for animals, um, you know, stuff to pave roads, that kind of stuff. And so my family, while we're actively involved in agriculture, we don't act- actually grow anything anymore. Well, um, I guess that's one of the the stories of the 20th century and the 21st century is that I guess the small family farm just disappears. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's the sad truth of, of American farms. They're getting bigger and bigger, and it's not because they're growing in size. Right. Um, do you have uh, 
So this this animal feed is this mainly uh, what kind of animals are does your brother supply and that kind of thing? So he works out of uh, Pixley, California. So in the Central Valley of California is um, it's mostly dairy areas. So uh, he mostly provides silage for for dairy cattle, uh, some almond holes, uh, cotton seed, you know. Uh, just a few different, you know, uh, supplemental things that can be added to the grain and silage that's fed to dairy cattle mostly. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, like, um, with, you know, I, I've talked to people all over California. Mm-hmm. And they pretty much, believe it or not, or maybe you would believe it, <laughs> um, pretty much everybody I talk to, Except for two people. Again, I've probably talked to about ten or so people. Some of this is made the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe more than ten at this point. I don't even know. But they pretty much all basically said, you know, how, no matter how they voted, um, the the COVID restrictions in California were just really kind of terrible <laughs> like absolutely couldn't really do anything or something about like one guy even told me like i couldn't even go outside for a walk oh mm-hmm. that's extreme yeah no it was pretty <laughs> bad here for a while it's getting better now you know we're starting to, to alleviate some of that yeah. but it's definitely been bad yeah so how does that impact or i'm gonna okay that was me being biased let me ask you this <laughs> way has that impacted your uh, your your family's businesses as far as putting feed in front of animals and moving agriculture products from A to B and that kind of thing. Uh, it it has in a way. Um, so business for my family didn't slow down quite as much uh, as as it did for other other businesses. Um, but that's mostly because agriculture never stops, right? It's you know it's an ongoing industry. Um, we did see a dramatic drop in milk price whenever the whole COVID situation happened. And, uh, part of that is just because, you know, there was a, a massive change in you know, the economy. Uh, but also because there was a, there, there's a, 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 you know, more than we would like amount of farmers that were having to dispose of their milk. You know, they're dumping milk. They were having to, to mm-hmm. not, you know, to not produce as much or, or to eradicate any, any product that they had because they couldn't process it. You know, they couldn't get it to the stores, they couldn't get it to the schools, all that kind of stuff. So we basically saw a complete halt of the, of the dairy industry momentarily, and that halt caused an economic shift that really damaged a lot of kind of side industries. So uh, we, were in, we were impacted that way. So, you know, a lot of those side industries kind of took a hit because the dairymen couldn't pay as much for a lot of the product that they originally would have been uh, paying for. So there was some slight changes in there. It wasn't like a massive change because like it's not like we have a day-to-day, you know, indoor operation that uh, would have to change in, in any way due to COVID restrictions. It was more kind of like as a domino effect that it, it you know, ultimately it lowered my dad's business a little bit. He wasn't able to do as much pest control because not as many dairies could afford it. Uh, my brother was finding that a lot of his customers um, weren't able to take as large, you know, as large of loads or that his truckers weren't able to go to certain areas just because of COVID restrictions or, you know, like there is, Minor changes here and there, but I wouldn't say it was massively, you know, it wasn't like an industry changing kind of event like it was for some other businesses. All right. Um, and again, every single person that I've talked to in California has had a fire story. 
<laughs> and you're essentially a native Californian, right? So correct. You probably so what is the difference between like the last couple of years of the fires and and this year? Or okay, I mean, last cup. Wait a minute. What's the difference between the last couple of years and like before? Like mm-hmm. back in the before, you know, before whenever. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's it's. You know, that, that's a difficult question to answer because wildfires are kind of like a, that's like California's natural disaster, the same way that tornadoes are, are you know, the Midwest's natural disaster. Um, so, you know, in, in that way, you know, not much has changed. You know, we're still having wildfire issues. I think that a lot of the reason why it was different this time was uh, because, you know, there, there was a, a bit of a political reason behind it. Um, they had to do with poor communication about proper environmental uh, control. You know, there was there's a lot of pushback against uh, deforestation for the purpose of you know er- eradicating a lot of that potential wildfire hazard, and mm-hmm. a lot of the reason that people think the wildfires, you know, especially this this last year and, and the past couple of years have been so bad, is because we have been able to we we haven't been able to really get rid of a lot of the you know the dead brush that would be causing them in the first place. So I think that. In mm-hmm. terms of difference, there hasn't been a, you know, there hasn't been a ton in terms of the actual, you know, the damage caused, the size of the wildfires. Like this one was pretty big, but it, you know, it wasn't like there was, you know, it, it's not like anything that's unheard of for California. We have fires all the time. It's a natural thing. When you say this one, um, are you talking about a specific fire? Yes. So we had a fire uh, this last year that was incredibly devastating. Um, it was one of the biggest fires we've had in California's history. Um, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of discussion about why the fire happened. Now there was, granted, there were some, there were some external factors that led to this fire happening and it, you know, despite popular belief, wasn't entirely natural. You know, there's a few different things that like, we really can't do a whole lot about. Like there was one that was, um, this family was doing a gender reveal for their baby mm-hmm. and they, they set off a firework that caused a wildfire. Um, there was like, you know, so it's like that kind of stuff. Like you're not going to be able to control that. That's just and the, stupid. And the, and the crazy thing to me about that, you know, party, you know, reason for the party aside, the crazy thing to me about the fire, that fire was that it came out that they were operating that firework or sparkler, whatever it was. They yeah. were operating that within manufacturer's guidelines. Which, right. I mean, that's just how dry it was. Right, etc. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. So yeah, yeah. So there's, you know, there's, a certain, there's a certain element to that too. Is you know, there there you see a more a better conversation had about you know the surrounding environment, about the you know the forest, you know the forestry in the area, and mm-hmm. how to properly you know deal with the you know the the potential for fires for wildfires and how to prevent them from happening at any you know at any cause possible. Um, and the thing is, I just don't think we've been having that, that conversation very well, you know. Um, is, it because, kind of, is it because oh, yeah. – let me ask you a question because I don't live in California. But let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Is it because, in your estimation, the fact is that, you know, fires, whether we want to, whether we want to talk about it in this conversation or not, no matter what you feel about it or think mm-hmm. about it, the fact is that, the global warming has become a political, um, like an entrenched political opinion. Mm-hmm. And you can't really have 
kind of a, a bipartisan or a nonpartisan conversation about wildfires in California, at least right. from what I've been able to understand from the people I've talked to, that mm. you can't really discuss how to do this because some people don't think the uh, global warming is real and other people do. And mm. I mean, and I mean, one of my guests or maybe a couple, maybe like a couple or three brought up something pretty crazy, which was like, there are these laws that say you can't do things. I think you might've talked about it. Like there are these laws that say you can't, um, get basically get rid of the underbrush because that's part of the, the view essentially that people pay for. Right. Right. (laughs) Yes. So, I mean, and that's, you know, that's where a lot of the controversy comes from. You know, I think that, you know, kind of like I was saying, there was a, a poor communication between the environmental groups and those who are trying to prevent the forest fires in the first place. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there, there's a conversation to be had about the, you know, the relationship between the fires and global warming. You know, that, that definitely has been a, a topic that came up a few times during that whole event. But there was a less common conversation about, you know, exactly what you just mentioned. There's laws preventing us from clearing, you know, potential wildfire hazards that very easily could have been the cause and more than likely were the cause of, of this most recent wildfire. Um, you know, global warming aside, there's, there's, you know, things, there's concrete evidence that we saw that actually, you know, were, mo- were the most likely cause that we could have prevented and that we weren't allowed to because of environmental protection laws. Yeah. Well, it's probably, you know, like everything else in the world, it's, it's probably a, a combination of a lot of things, a whole lot Absolutely. of things. Absolutely. You know? Yes. And, one of my, well, first of all, okay, your family, let's just, your family, um, they're from Oklahoma originally. You, you said that, I think, right? Yes. Yeah, I, I have some, yeah, I have some family from Oklahoma. Okay. Um, how long has your, have your parents been in California? Uh, so my parents were actually, um, well, my mom was, was born in uh, Arizona, but she moved to California when she was about, I believe, three or maybe even younger. Uh, my dad's been in California his whole life. Yeah. Um, so you live out in the Central Valley, which is pretty agrarian, right? Correct. Um, do you know? I mean, did any? Are, do any of the old time landowners do they do they kind of tell people how to manage this? Tell their neighbors how to manage it, or do they? But do you feel like they know things about how to manage the fires that? Maybe some of the newer people don't know. I would say there's probably part of that. Um, I think that because the fires are a bit less common in the Central Valley area, a lot of them are happening more towards the you know the upper hill, uh, more hilly areas. Yeah. Uh, there's there, you know there's some you know there's some hazards in the Central Valley, but we're pretty far away from the trees, and that's where a lot of it's happening. Uh, but I have talked to some people that live in that area, and, and I have some friends in that area that uh, you know that, that kind of like you said have kind of the know-how on how to how to deal with a lot of that stuff. But the problem, you know, again, goes back to there's only so much you can do under under legal limits that, that can actually prevent that. A lot of it's going to happen anyways. Yeah. I mean, but, and also, I don't think we, in this episode, we haven't given a sense of scale. Because I live in the East, and uh-huh. what we call a forest fire, what we call like a forest fire is not, is nowhere close to what you would call it. To what you you and out there we call a forest fire at all, <laughs> right? Um, right. Why don't you give some kind of scale 
to people that haven't heard any of my other fire episodes about how how big we're talking. Um, let me let me pull up the actual numbers of of um, how you know how how large the fire was. I know that it spans almost the entirety of the western of, of California's coastline. Um, yeah. So basically, it was you know from I believe just south of Sacramento all the way down until about San Diego area. But again, let me let me pull it up just so I don't. You know, Which just of, just for eastern scale, that's uh, basically Baltimore to Florida. Right. Yeah. So imagine so, yeah. Baltimore to Florida on fire. I mean, Jesus, Jesus God. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. No. So it, it burned about 552 acres in total. Um, which 552 acres. I'm not sure how you know how to scale that versus you know to to the East Coast. But if if we look at you know the total acreage of California, um, it's it's about Let's see, 101,000 acres. So you know, if 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 500 of those acres, which doesn't sound like a lot in you know in you know in the in the grand scheme of things, the 500 acres that's you know that's larger than than some states are in total. You know, and it also and depends on where those 500 acres are. I mean, really. right? Exactly. You know, <laughs> um, like when uh, I think that one of the more accurate things you can use to scale it is kind of you know explain to people you know. Not so much how large the damage was, but what what kind of damage it caused. I mean, um, there were you know hundreds of houses that were destroyed. There were you know tens of of you know close to hundreds of farms that were they were completely uh, deemed you know unfarmable after that. There were you know thousands of animals that were killed. There was you know tons and tons of crops that were destroyed. Um, you know, I had friends who lost homes who you know had to move back. You know, had to move basically into the Central Valley to find you know, to find safety away from the fires and then had to completely rebuild their homes from scratch. I mean, um, it it made it so bad that, you know, we had, so just, you know, just to give you perspective, I, I live in the Central Valley, but I'm probably a solid two to three hours away from where the fires were occurring. And the smoke from the fire filled our air for weeks. Like there were points where uh, people were, were developing almost like asthmatic level you know, lung issues just from the amount of smoke in the air that were, you know, two, three hours away. Um, We, you know, we had tons of crops in the the Central Valley that were actually stunted in their growth because the smoke was covering the sky. You know, the the crops didn't receive enough sunlight to even grow to their proper size. And so a lot of uh, harvesting seasons were even cut short because of the fires. So that kind of gives you more of a scale of just how much the damage was as opposed to how large the fire was. Yeah, I mean, I was talking to, around the time of the fires, I was talking to a woman uh, out in California, kind of, I, I think, kind of close to where you live. Well, closer to me for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she she basically said, I, "Oh, I gotta go. There's this fire coming." I was like, "Really?" And she texted me photos of this fire. And before, like, mm-hmm. she was just, you know, like she, I don't want to say she played it off, but she made it seem like it wasn't as big as it actually was. When she texted me those fires, the pictures, it was like, Jesus, that's huge. Hmm. Yeah, no, it was massive. So I'm I'm looking at yeah. a new article here that is kind of you know contradicting what I had said before. Um, it's looking like the the fires actually reached about four million acres of of, of damage. Yeah, I don't think it was 500 acres. I think it was like millions and millions of acres, really. Because I think she, I I think the 500 acres might have been from a, a, an older fire. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that that I've 
that people have talked to me about is there used to be a fire season. Like there used mm-hmm. to be this time of year where there was a fire season. Mm-hmm. And now it's basically year round. It's essentially like all right. year round and you can't, what did they actually say? It was like, you can't, the guy said something kind of amazing. It was like, you can't really plan for it except just to know it could happen at any moment. Um, Okay, tell me about, can you tell me about the COVID restrictions? Like Uh, In regards to to agriculture or just the state of California? Just in regards to your own, well, what, what could you not do, you yourself personally? What could you not do because of COVID restrictions? So we had a lot of the common ones, you know, restaurants are closed down, all the buildings are closed down, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. You know, obviously school was was put online for some time. Um, so we saw a lot of that happening, which I was happening in other areas too. The mask mandate obviously was a big one. Um, we did, you know, this uh, luckily never reached my area, but we did see uh, like stuff like kind of on the verge of martial law almost happening in other parts of California. You know, people were unable to go outside a whole lot, you know, um, people were were, able, were really unable to to do any kind of large large gatherings. Um, again, luckily that kind of that whole wave kind of missed my part of California. Um, but we did have. Did they govern by? I'm wondering if they did it by zones or something. It, so uh, that was part of it. Another part of it was that yeah. some of the more rural areas of California kind of just didn't really follow a lot of the mandates. Um, yeah. There were a lot more, you know, because they were such small areas and because their numbers were so low, they kind of said, you know what, I think we're fine. We're not going to do it. And so the city kind of gave permission to not, you know, to not follow every mandate. Um, so that was part of yeah. it. Uh, I, it was kind of, you know, we heard that it got a lot worse in some of the more populated areas. A lot of the, the restrictions were a lot worse, but we were able to avoid quite a few of them just because of our, our small area. Um, I did recently moved to a larger city and I did notice the restrictions were a bit, you know, a bit tougher here. Um, even mm-hmm. in like, you know, areas that were outside that, you know, there weren't a lot of people around, you were still required to wear a mask, you were still required to stay yeah. distance, which that was, you know, that was whatever. Um, but we noticed that there was, you know, starting to become more and more restrictions on just, you know, day-to-day interaction kind of stuff. You know, you couldn't mm-hmm. have, you know, parties that were over, you know, just a few people, you couldn't really have, like, we, you know, we had friends who uh, were unable to hold funeral services or weddings just because of, of the, the kind of stuff that we we're going through. So, um, yeah. a lot of it, you know, it, some of it was the severity of, of the restrictions, but a lot of it was more so the, the duration. You know, we had, we had other yeah. states that had, you know, more cases than we, than we did that were, uh, getting more freedoms a lot sooner than, than we were. And we were kind of just holding out and doing stuff and really, uh, mm-hmm. it wasn't quite clear why. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm a little odd. Mm-hmm. I I have a podcast where I, I had, to, because of my podcast where I talked about COVID, I learned a lot about it. So I le- I've watched the science evolve. Like I watched mm-hmm. the science evolve in real time. Mm-hmm. And I think in the early days of COVID, in the early days of, oh my God, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. I really think a lot of people, a lot of scientists actually thought it was going to be a hell of a lot worse than it ended up being for Mm -hmm. a lot of people. And by the time you, 
unfortunately, everything in this country is political, right? Mm-hmm. So by the time you realize, okay, well, as long as you're wearing a mask and maybe you should probably eat outside, like maybe that's real. Maybe you should probably eat outside if you mm-hmm. eat in a restaurant. By the time they got to that, I don't know if, um, you know, you pretty much had ingrained your tribes. Like, you pretty much right. picked a team. And right. also, the whole notion of, so viruses evolve. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, they evolve quickly, too. When they, sometimes they evolve very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's a lot of thought even now that, like, there's different, there's totally different strains of COVID in different places. Right. So, I mean, eh. Boy, yeah. And that was just unfortunate. Um, yeah. Do you know anybody that had COVID or got COVID or anything like that? Absolutely. I mean, um, I had, you know, relatives that had it. My, my roommates, you know, I'm, I live with, with, uh, three other, three other guys. They all got it. Um, they all I, got it and you didn't. So here's the thing. Wow. I, right. I, I'm almost positive that I had it, uh, back before the, the original quarantine began, uh, back in, you know, last March. Um, okay. Because I, I had a lot of the symptoms, but at that time we didn't really know, you know, what it was. And so I never went yeah. and got tested. I just kind of, I, I, I sucked, I stuck it out. After about two weeks, I started to feel better. And so we're pretty yeah. sure that I had it, um, but we don't have okay. any concrete evidence. So besides my symptoms, um, so we think that that's why I didn't get it when my roommates did, even though it was almost, you know, it was about nine months later. So we thought that, you know, the antibodies might have worn off. Um, so it was kind of a, a strange situation, but yeah, so my roommates got it. Um, I didn't, I kind of just, you know, stayed, I had to stay in my apartment though, because we self quarantine for the two weeks. And so, um, my roommates got it. I had a few coworkers that got it. So like I said, some relatives of mine got it. Um, I never really knew anybody that got like incredibly negatively affected by it. You know, most of the people who I, who I had known who had got it had really no, you know, incredibly devastating symptoms. They kind of got over it pretty quickly without, you know, without really feeling bad. Um, mm-hmm. I did have an aunt that got it that was hospitalized, but she recovered really quickly when she got out of the hospital. Um, mm. but that was about the worst it got. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So. I mean, I've certainly known people mm. that, and I've known people that died from it. Right. Um, high school, high school classmates and a college classmate or two. Um, mm. yeah. Um, so, let me see. Um, do you, um, what do you think, um, do you have, is your area more of a, are people moving into your area or are they moving out, like, as, as a rule? Uh, you know, I think that, I mean, it being California, a lot of people are moving out, but um, it seems like my population, at least back in my hometown, is staying pretty stagnant with, like, maybe, like, a, a slight amount of people moving out, but that's about it. Hmm. Now, for the purposes of, an oral history podcast, descri- or an oral history descri- disguised as a podcast. 
Why do you mm-hmm. think people are moving out of California? Uh, some of it has to do with political motivation. I think that that's definitely part of it. Um, but the thing is, what's interesting about it is uh, people from both sides of the, of the political spectrum are, are moving out. So that, that kind of, you know, defeats that theory. Uh, you know, people seem to have – they seem to say they're moving out for, for political reasons. That very seldom seems to be the actual case in my experience. I think a lot of it has to do with uh, some people just don't like the climate of California because it gets too hot or because they just don't like the, you know, the, the bipolar weather. They don't like the wildfire situation, whatever it is. They just – they seem to have a problem with California's uh, just general environment. Uh, some people are, are kind of dissatisfied with, with the state government, so that's part of it. Um, there are some people who, at least, you know, pe- people who grew up with me in my hometown, they were just dying to get out of a small town, so they went to, you know, other states where they didn't have to be in a small town, even though we have some of the largest cities in California, so I'm not sure yeah. why they go there. But why didn't they go to L.A.? Or that's what I'm San saying. Or... <laughs> well, I know, okay, San Francisco is expensive. L.A., Yes. I guess can get expensive. Um, I think that's part of it too. Is definitely the cost of living is is definitely a, a big factor. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I could see that. Um, yeah, I mean, hmm. well, plus, like, agriculture is an important job skill, and you can it is you could port that to a lot of places. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of places you could port that to. Yes, absolutely. Um, and and that's a big thing, too, is, you know, a lot of people who get involved in agriculture, um, they find that California, because California has one of, if not the most uh, regulated states, you know, in, in the entire country, you know, in terms of, especially in terms of agricultural production, the regulations are so high that a lot of farms are really struggling to keep their head above water, and you're seeing a lot of small farms die out because of regulations. Um, you know, say what you will about about the markets and the economy. That's part of it too. But the regulation seems to be the largest factor to small farms dying out and larger farms continuing to thrive. Um, right. So you see, you see a lot of you know, especially small farmers, but a lot of farmers moving out because they want to escape the regulation. Like what regulations specifically do you think are are, uh, are having a, a negative impact on the the small farmer? Uh, there's quite a few that have to do with. Um, like there, there's some market regulations here and there that are that are definitely impacting it, but a lot of the regulations uh, that impact transportation of goods. So kind of like what my brother does with the whole trucking thing, uh, transporting commodities, the price has gone up because the regulations to transport those goods have gone up. So it's more difficult to run those operations, which obviously would increase the price by by byproduct. And so the you know with any increase in regulation, there's going to be an increase in price of some sort. So the price of transportation has gone up. The, the price of you know certain pesticides and other chemicals has gone up. A lot of pesticides and other chemicals are being banned, which is which is causing some difficulty for some operations. Um, a lot of of you know non I'll say non conventional. So you know uh, organic, non GMO, you know non non pesticide using operations are getting subsidies for that kind of stuff. A lot of regenerative you know operations getting subsidies. So. It's almost uh, discouraging some conventional farmers from from following that, you know, from uh, following their traditional path. Um, You're seeing a lot of regulations regarding animal agriculture start to arise, you know, regulations that have to do with uh, the size and living conditions of animal, you know, feeding operations or or APHOs, especially confined animal feeding operations. You know, they, they have regulations on pen size and on, you know, animals per, you know, per area of land or, you know, those kinds of regulations are like, 
they're a bit nitpicky, but when, when you start to realize how many of them there are and how, how specific they can be, the costs tend to accrue very, very, you know, rapidly at, at almost an exponential rate. And that can definitely drive a lot of small farmers into the ground. Do you think that has to do, do you think these regulations come from a place of maybe city people not knowing how to run a farm or like what? I think, I think that that's part of it. So that's actually a big reason why I started my podcast, Talk Agony, is because I noticed okay. that a lot of the, a lot of the issues that we were facing in agriculture, um, you know, regulations or uh, market fluctuations or, you know, public uh, opposition to a lot of agricultural practices, people distrusting agriculture in a lot of ways. A lot of it had to do with just miscommunication or poor education around agriculture. You know, we were having uh, a hard time teaching people about where their food came from, especially because we weren't really taking the effort to teach them. We were kind of just hoping that they would figure it out. And when you hope someone figures something out and then they have to vote on things that impact your life, it tends to not end very well for you. So I... Right. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I I mean, it's like, what a... You know, if you're if you're in water, if you're a water person, you know, if you're mm-hmm. a, what do you what do you call that? Like the you know, if you work for the water company, yeah, the irrigation districts. You can be a really smart. You can be talking to a really smart lawyer, a really smart politician, whatever, and right. they don't know how the water works. You know, they just right. know the tap turns on. Right. You know. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I you know absolutely, and that's you know. That's another, I'm glad you brought up water because that's another big issue that agriculture in, in California in particular uh, faces, you know, regulations around water control and water rights and all that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, like you said, people people don't realize just how intricate agriculture is and how important they are to the agricultural system, you know, that, mm. their, that their dollar votes for a lot more than they realize it does. And so mm. there's... A lot of the issues that we're seeing in agriculture, especially in California, are, are, in my opinion at least, due to poor communication with consumers who are actually voting on this stuff. And some of it is, you know, it's top-down government stuff that consumers don't really have a whole lot of say in anyway, but a lot of it is voting that they just don't really have the proper information on. So they see, oh, um, you know, this vote's going to save some animals. Cool, I'll do that one. When really it doesn't save animals, it just costs more money to do what we're doing anyways. Yeah, I mean, it's one, I mean, you know, I try to eat. When I eat eggs, when I get eggs, I try to get, you know, the, I guess the, whatever, like the, you know, not, the eggs don't come out of pens, basically. They, I want right. chickens to be exercising because, so I've been told or so I've seen that makes for a better egg, better meat, whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's, I could see where it could get really expensive to expect everybody to do that. Right. Yeah. You know, I could see that. And I could also see that you're not like I can literally go to the store and see it. You're 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 making eggs more expensive mm-hmm. for the average human. Yeah. <laughs> for everybody. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, not exactly. everybody yeah. Um not everybody can pay four to six dollars for eighteen eggs or whatever. Or, right. You know. And you know, and then people, you know, you'll you'll see a lot of consumers in the mar- in you know in the stores get frustrated about the increase in price when they didn't realize they just voted on a regulation that makes it a lot harder to raise that product, so the price is naturally going to have to go up. And so, exactly, you know, those conversations could could save a lot of people a lot of money and also preserve their idea of what agriculture is. Yeah. 
Are you aware of, because where I live, there's this new, newer thing going on now where people who could drag out to the store and buy their own eggs are choosing to raise their own chickens. Like, I'm talking about Mm -hmm. suburban folks raising their own chickens. What do you think about that? Yeah, I've, I've actually seen quite a bit of that going on. Um, I'm actually, I'm reading a book right now. It's called, uh, Farm City. It's actually all about that, that exact phenomenon. It's, you know, the, the rise of urban agriculture. Um, I personally think it's a great thing. Um, I think that yeah. a lot of people are looking for any excuse to go back to, you know, their rural roots. I kind of have been working on this theory that, you know, people have a natural, a natural draw towards rural life and, and towards, you know, towards agriculture, towards nature. And so, I think that a lot of people, you know, pursuing that is actually, a, you know, I, despite whether or not it ends up being successful, you know, in their, you know, in their journey, I think it's a good thing because it, it, what's wrong with me? it, it encourages the proper conversation about food. You know, um, if they're raising chickens, then they're going to have to do some research on chickens. They're going to have to do some research on food safety, on, you know, everything that goes into raising, uh, you know, birds for meat or birds for eggs or whatever it is. And then that causes them to do research on other industries, you know, because now they're looking into feed and where the feed comes from and why it's so expensive and why the price fluctuates. And, you know, as they learn more about all that, you know, all that stuff, they're starting to realize, oh, everything I'm buying in the store is doing the exact same things that my stuff I'm growing at home is doing. That must be why. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, anyone who wants to have like a small commercial, uh, sorry, small non-commercial operation, whether it be a garden or some backyard chickens or whatever, if they can find the, you know, the room and time to do it, I definitely encourage it because for one, it increases in in education and conversation about agriculture. And for two, it gives people more of an appreciation for the work that agriculturalists put in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely, I definitely get uh, where you're coming from there. I, I just kind of more am concerned about, and I'm coming at from it from a, I guess a, viro- a virological standpoint. Mm-hmm. Like you know, you really got to look. You really got to look after, you know, birds specifically mm-hmm. because birds carry diseases and things like that. You know. Yes, certainly. <laughs> Um, yeah, and that's, that's actually why, you know, a lot of people, you know, kind of to your point about the, um, the, the shift in market towards free range chicken, you know, there's been that whole, that whole mm-hmm. shift and kind of like you mentioned, you like chickens that are able to get out and exercise and all that kind of stuff. Perfectly understandable reason. Um, but there's a, a misconception around the industry because of that exact reason. Like you just mentioned, birds carry diseases. And because of that, Mm-hmm. The poultry industry and the, and actually the pork industry as well are the two most clean industries. And what I mean by clean is if you try to walk onto a poultry operation, if it's a high, you know, if it's a high tier commercial operation, if it's not just some backyard chicken coop, if it's a high tier commercial operation that's not going for the free range kind of thing, they're usually very biosecure. So you go into their facility, you usually have to strip down, take a shower, and then wear their clothes to get into the operation. And that's because, like you mentioned, birds carry a lot of diseases. They're very difficult to, to keep alive. And if one bird gets sick, then they're all going to get sick and die. And if, you know, if one bird gets some kind of avian flu, then all of a sudden, yeah, now you have a new pandemic. So, 
Mm. There's a ton of, you know, there's a ton of regulation on, on biosecurity, stuff like that too. Not necessarily, you know, top down state regulation, but just, you know, within the industry, there's, there's a lot of commercialized regulation that's focused on trying to make sure that we keep those birds in an area where they can't get themselves or anyone else sick. And so that's actually a lot of the motivation behind having them in like the cages and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, just as a matter of perspective, I mean, most right. of your, most of your diseases, period, paragraph, uh, travel from birds or fish to mammals. So. Right. Just saying. <laughs> yes. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And that's, you know, that's a mm-hmm. big, that's a big motivator behind having that, you know, the biosecure industry. Yeah. And when people, you know, people will fight you on it and say, oh, but, you know, I, you know, I don't want to, um, I don't want to have my, my, chickens locked up in their cages like that's fine you know they can get exercise still but keep in mind what you're risking by doing that you know there there needs to be a better conversation about what we're doing with these chickens and again it goes back to what the purpose of the meat is you know if if these people are raising backyard chickens just for the sake of having their own eggs then you know it's probably fine but if they're trying to sell that meat or sell those eggs and there needs to be a, a, a you know a consciousness surrounding the food safety behind the transaction and making sure that the operation is very clean and, you know, well-kept and all that kind of stuff. That way you don't risk, you know, potentially spreading a lot of those diseases. I, I totally get that. I mean, I just wish um, there was a lot more emphasis on education, educating people about things that my grandparents would have known, things that my grandfather <laughs> would have known about chickens and how to do it and and make sure it doesn't happen at a college. Make sure it happens at, I don't know, the local library or community center or whatever. Yeah. Church space. No, I, I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely agree with you. I mean, that's my entire, I'm, I, like I said, I'm in college right now. I'm studying to be a, a, a an agriculture teacher, you know, a high school agriculture teacher. And that's my yeah. entire motivation is that people need to have a better understanding of the kind of stuff that we, you know, that everyone used to think as, as common sense. Right. Because... You know, people don't, people learn different things. I mean, the, the generations, you're losing knowledge, but you're, you're gaining different knowledge. Right. You know, so, you know. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, is there anything else you want to tell the internet while you're on the phone? <laughs> You know, um, I just, you know, I wanted to thank you again, Ben, for bringing me on here. It's sure been a lot of fun. I always enjoy getting the chance to kind of spread information about agriculture. It's always kind of a passion of mine. So for all of you listening, have more conversations about your food. You know, go out there. Don't be afraid to ask a farmer or do some research and learn more about what what goes into growing the food you eat on a daily basis. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you. Bye.